Oops, looks like I dropped the ball. When using Glorfindel as an example, that is. Don't get me wrong, he was a very good example. A superb and probably the most illustrious case of a Middle-earth resident who also doubled as an inhabitant of the Blessed Land in the West, beyond the ocean. What happened is that I failed in conveying precisely how spot-on he and others are as examples of the Millennial Kingdom's sainthood. When originally making mention of him, I hadn't read The Lord of the Rings since college, and the intervening decades since 9-11 as well as the Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations, and thousands of intel psyops and hoaxes packed within, have had a way of thinning the intricacies of his bio. It's for these very reasons that I decided to reread The Lord of the Rings again, mostly as a pleasure cruise. As a reminder, I am attempting to make comparisons between the elves of Middle-earth and the kings and priests of the Millennial Kingdom, because as I've said before, Tolkien was in deep, and there's something to be said about his writings. Well, in the movie, Steven Tyler's daughter Arwen and her horse carry Frodo on the final leg of his journey to Rivendell, only to be confronted by the ringwraiths at the ford. Oops, <laughs> I'm full of all sorts of mistakes today. Forgive me. I meant to invoke Elrond's daughter rather than Aerosmith. What was I thinking? Anywho, how could I have forgotten that it is Glorfindel who intervenes, not Arwen, having been personally dispatched from Elrond, and that it is his horse which Frodo rides to Rivendale, only to have the ringwraiths swept away at the ford? The contrast between Glorfindel and the ringwraiths once again has real-world application. To explain their differences, though, I'm thinking the Ring of Power quickly needs to come into the discussion. No, not the Netflix series. I've already skimmed over the Magic Ring in my Narnia Reset paper. I've so far made a couple presentations out of that. But seeing as how C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were tapping into the same source, it deserves repeating here. Lewis, of course, was a card-carrying Platonist, and in Book 2 of his Republic, Plato offers a hypothetical magical ring, which makes its wearer invisible. He calls it the Ring of Gyges, the name of the shepherd entrusted with it. Through his invisibility, Gyges seduces a queen, kills the king, and takes the kingdom. If that sounds like a setup for Queen Jadis, aka the White Witch, and the killing of Aslan, then clearly you have seen how Lewis was not ripping off Tolkien's Ring trilogy despite claims to the contrary. The defining difference between Lewis and Tolkien is that the Rings of Narnia lore snatch its wearer into other worlds, whereas Tolkien's ring has the power to enter its ring bearer into the spiritual realm. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, Narnia and the worlds of Lewis might as well be the greater spiritual realm, but that is another discussion at this point. There are other magical rings probably worth mentioning, one that comes to mind is the Ring of Shaloma, that would be Solomon, a gift he was offered by the Archangel Gabriel in Testament of Solomon. Though he wasn't made invisible or pulled into the spiritual realm, the Ring's intended purpose was to summon the spiritual world to him, particularly unclean Ruakoth. And of course, with Shaloma's power came corruption. The victory was ultimately theirs. His weakness was women. The king of Yasharel had a decision to make. 
if you wanted to add to his rotunda of wives, then the worship of Ashtoreth and Moloch, entities inhabiting the spiritual realm, was the way to go, apparently. Like Gyges afterwards, it is the ring which empowered him to make evil decisions. And like Shaloma, the ring wraiths of Middle-earth had also been kings at one time. Nine rings were gifted for mortal men, doomed to die. In turn, their wearers fell under the control of Sauron, the ring's maker. Something which the movies don't make abundantly clear is that the inhabitants of the spiritual realm, particularly the wraiths, the ring wraiths, can only faintly see the material sunlit realm which we inhabit. We are but shadows to them in the light, just as they are but shades to us in the night. That is the reason as to why they were only capable of focusing in upon Frodo and then piercing him with their sword when he put the ring on. Because in doing so, he entered the wraith world. They could see him and he them, shining as bright pale lights. Getting back to Glorfindel. But first, where does Glorfindel hang his hat? That depends upon the timeline of his life, obviously. He lived in Middle-earth, died in combat with the Balrog, arrived in the blessed land beyond the ocean, and then returned to Rivendell so as to accomplish his task. But that is not the whole of it. After Frodo awakes in Rivendell, having narrowly escaped becoming a wraith himself, after all he did slip on the ring only to be stabbed in the spirit realm, he then asked Gandalf all about the wraiths, as well as the servants of Sauron, who were even then becoming emboldened, sweeping over the world of men. Well, here's what we read of their conversation. It is Frodo asking and Gandalf responding. What about Rivendell and the elves? Is Rivendell safe? Yes, at present, until all else is conquered. The elves may fear the Dark Lord, and they may fly before him, but never again will they listen to him or serve him. And here in Rivendell there live still some of his chief foes, the Elvenwise, lords of the Elder from beyond the furthest seas. They do not fear the Ringwraiths, for those who have dwelt in the blessed realm live at once in both worlds. And against both, the seen and the unseen, they have great power. I thought that I saw a white figure that shone and did not grow dim like the others. Was that Glorfindel then? Yes. You saw him for a moment as he is upon the other side. One of the mighty of the firstborn. He is an elf lord of a house of princes. Indeed, there is a power in Rivendell to withstand the mights of Mordor for a while, and elsewhere other powers still dwell. There is power, too, of another kind in the Shire. But all such places will soon become islands under siege if things go on as they are going. The Dark Lord is putting forth all his strength. The answer as to Glorfindel's home address is that he inhabited both geographical locations simultaneously. With one foot, he straddled Middle-earth, the other, the Blessed Realm. That's a confirmation and all that we need to know in the course of this conversation. The Undying Lands is heaven, though it be on the earth. That would make it the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Frodo then asked if Glorfindel was the bright shining figure whom he saw on the horse at the moment when the water Ruakoth, uh, those would be spirits in the form of horses, washed the ring wraiths away. 
To which Gandalf replied with a big fat yes. Indeed, he had seen him, as his appearance would have it on the other side of the spiritual realm. Because if you recall, Frodo was slipping away from the material into the spiritual realm. So he saw him as he was. It should be noted that Frodo also saw shadowy figures waving flames behind Glorfindel. Those would be his mortal companions, Aragorn and the Three Hobbits. The Ring Race nearly had Frodo. That is to say, he was only moments away from becoming one of them. He had entered the spiritual world of the Ring so that mortals would become shades and the resurrected would be seen as they truly are, glorious, illuminated beings. There is some theology for you. Now, take what you've just learned and apply it to the resurrected sainthood ruling as kings and priests of the Millennial Kingdom. If you just so happen to drop in and you are completely confused, the ongoing investigation is whether or not the Millennial Kingdom of Yahusha HaMashiach physically happened on this realm. Not just spiritually, but physically. And of course, according to the timeline I've proposed, it happened from the years 500 to 1500, which also happens to be the Dark Ages. And that is, of course, what both Lewis and Tolkien were tapping into. And so I ask, could they be hiding in plain sight? Have they, the kings and priests, have they been depicted in paintings with the appearance of the mortal material realm? Rather than their dualistic counterpart is a question worth asking. Checkerboard floors, anyone? A little later down the turnpike, even Gandalf showcases his divine counterpart, but only for a brief second. The moment happens when he appears to Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli in the Old Forest, glowing with illumination. Like Lorfindel, he too died in combat with a Balrog demon. In the movie, he originally told the Fellowship to run, you fools, before dropping into the abyss. Now in every single copy, he says, fly, you fools. And it's the same movie. If the line swap confuses you, then look no further than the Mandela effect, but I digress. Upon resurrecting from the dead, that is, returning to Middle-earth from the Blessed Land, he too had a dualistic nature. He inhabited both places simultaneously, though mortals could only define him by his white cloth. Long story short, the supreme being of Arda and creator of Middle-earth, his name is Eru Elevator, had sent Gandalf back to assume Saruman's role as the White. Saruman, of course, failed at his mission to protect the realm and threw his weight behind the wrong entity, Sauron. Tom Bombadil didn't make it into the Peter Jackson movie either. He was, however, a weighty presence in the book, and referenced in that conversation between Gandalf and Frodo, which I quoted from. In saying that there was power of another kind in the Shire, it is safe to assume that Tom Bombadil is quite different from Glorfindel. Those differences will now be discussed. After being saved from Old Man Willow, the very tree which ingested Merian Pippin and attempted to drown Frodo, Tom Bombadil escorts the four hobbits to his home. In a conversation between them, Frodo asked Tom Bombadil concerning his identity, and this is what we learn. Who are you, master? he asked. Uh, what? said Tom, sitting up, and his eyes glinting in the gloom. Don't you know my name yet? That's the only answer. Tell me, who are you? Alone, yourself, and nameless. But you are young, and I am old. Eldest, that's what I am. Mark my words, my friends. Tom was here before the river in the trees. 
Tom remembers the first raindrop and the first acorn. He made paths before the big people and saw the little people arriving. He was here before the kings and the graves and the barrel whites. When the elves passed westward, Tom was here already. Before the seas were bent, he knew the dark under the stars when it was fearless. Before the Dark Lord came from outside. Even according to his own testimony, the origin and nature of Tom Bombadil is unknown. But then, seeing as how he claimed to have already existed before the Dark Lord came to Arda, a safe assumption would be one which assigns Tom Bombadil to the co-ruling Alahayam, or Elohim in modern Hebrew, gods if you prefer English, whom the Divine Father of Ruakoth assigned to rule over our world. Arda, in case you were wondering, is a reference to the greater realm of the Earth. It includes Middle-earth as well as the Undying Lands in the West. Because remember, it was all a flat realm at one time and then it was turned into a globe and the Undying Lands, or the Blessed Land, existed just beyond the curve of the Earth. Because it doesn't exist on any globe-Earth maps, you see. It only exists on a flat-Earth map. Tom Bombadil even refers to having already existed before the seas were bent. There is your flat-to-globe-Earth reference right there. Whereas the Blessed Realm can only be found, as I just mentioned, on flat-Earth maps. In comparing Tom with the co-ruling Alahayam, I'm referencing the 70, as mentioned in Deuteronomy 32.8. How their co-rulership over specific tracts of land worked out in our own his story is another narrative in and of itself, which I don't intend to repeat here. The quick explanation is that El Elyon gave Yasharel to Yahuwaha, the son of Alahayam, as his inheritance. It's in Deuteronomy 32.8. Yahuwaha then went on to inherit the world in the person of Yehusha HaMashiach, our high king and priest. The other Alahayam were judged for not leading as they ought. Well, Tom Bombadil may be one of them. Living in a valley within the depths of the old forest east of Buckland, his domain was of modest size, though he seemed to possess an unequal power over the land immediately surrounding his dwelling. The reason as to why there are no other Tom Bombadil tracts of land in Middle-earth, complete with Tom Bombadil-like creatures to rule them, may or may not be explained by Tolkien, I couldn't say at the moment. Scripture might suggest they fell by the wayside after succumbing to the service of the Dark Lord rather than the Most High, and, as I've suggested in other places, some Elohim may very well have stayed on course or even repented by the time Yahusha sent out the 70, or 72 by some accounts, in Lucas 10, claiming his inheritance over the world. Another tidbit stated by Gandalf is that all such places would soon become islands under siege if the course of events continued on as they were going. A common theme in the Millennial Kingdom narrative as well, leading us right up to our current short season. He is obviously referring to Tom Bombadil's little realm, but then their conversation took place in Rivendell, which might as well be a manifestation or an extension of the blessed realm upon the earth. In fact, that's very much what it appears to be. I intend to end today's discussion on that note. Tolkien refers to Rivendell as the last homely house east of the sea. It is actually described in many ways, wonderful ways, and I don't care to recount them all for sake of time. Though here is one such quotation from Samwise Gamgee after Frodo has returned to the living, or at least recovered from his sleep, in Rivendell of all places. It's a big house, this, and very peculiar. 
Always a bit more to discover, and no knowing what you'll find round a corner. And elves, sir, elves here and elves there. Some like kings, terrible and splendid, and some as merry as children. And the music and the singing. Not that I have had the time or the heart for much listening since we got here, but I'm getting to know some of the ways of the place. Samwise describes the elves as kings, both terrible and splendid, while others exhibit the character of married children. Any parables of Yahusha HaMashiach come to mind? A great deal many of the songs which are sung in Rivendell derive from the Blessed Realm. No surprise. The tragedy in all of this, both in Tolkien's telling and as it regards our own realm, is that the lights of such places did not remain. They shrunk into islands of light, surrounded by darkness, until the fixtures of light decided to get up and leave. That's what happened to the elves in Middle-earth, and I'm under the impression that the Millennial Kingdom Saints did the same. They got up and left to the hidden wilderness. And now, all that supposedly remains within our own realm is the Camp of Yah, which Hasatan hopes to surround for a final showdown.